You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. When you have a preponderance of evidence on your side, particularly where you're lonely, like I was in the Congo, you don't just need to bet, you need to bet big. What Buffett says is the secret to getting rich is mostly doing nothing. Nothing. Uh, don't try to be busy. But when the stars line up on your side, bet and bet bit very big. It's Bill Powers, and this is Mining Stock Education. I'm joined with Rick Rule of Rule Investment Media, as well as Brian Lenny of JuniorStockReview.com. Brian, are he, Brian and I are here to ask rural questions about investing in the resource sector as well as uh, broader economic issues as well. So with that, Brian, I'll kick it over to you for the first question. Sure. Thanks, Bill. Uh, since 2008, many countries around the world have exhibited anti-U.S. dollar hostilities. And we've seen a number of examples, you know, in, in Africa and, and, you know, the BRIC nations. Um, has the Ukraine-Russian uh, conflict put the anti-U.S. dollar hostilities into overdrive? Uh, Temporarily overdrive, sure. Uh, I'm fond of Doug Casey's statement that the U.S. dollar is the worst currency in the world, except all the others. Uh, The U.S. dollar is the most liquid instrument in the world, uh, and it it is the least obscure, uh, the most visible and the deepest capital markets on the planet. As much as the Russians don't like us and don't trust us, I think it's fair to say, although they wouldn't admit that they like us and trust us more than they like and trust the Chinese (laughs) and vice versa. So I think the U.S. dollar is the least bad alternative. Uh, Even a franchise as strong as the U.S. dollar cannot stand continued debasement. The thing that stands between the U.S. dollar and oblivion is simply that other cultures uh, run their currencies and their financial markets even more poorly than we do. Uh, For myself, if I had a choice with regards to uh, a savings instrument, and I had my choice between yen, yuan, euros, pounds, dollars, rubles, I'd probably choose gold. Uh, But in terms of uh, international trade and international settlements, uh, I think after the Ukraine uh, adventure has run its course, however long that may take, that the dollar will continue to regain its supremacy. Uh, I, I don't think that the dollar is too vulnerable to foreign disintermediation, simply because I don't see any other choices. Uh, certainly, the Russians would be willing to accept Remnimbi uh, for their resources. I don't think that the Chinese would be willing to accept rubles <laughs> for their manufactured goods. And I think when you look at global trade and settlements, uh, that the the U.S. dollar, as Doug Casey again might say, is probably the prettiest mare at the slaughterhouse. What about the Swiss franc? Uh, is that a currency of interest if you had to buy a currency? If, if I had to store wealth in a currency, if I had to store liquidity in Swiss francs, I might do it. Although... Some of the things that made Switzerland fantastic, which is to say neutrality and an individual belief in liberty, uh, are fading. You know, the Swiss are becoming more European. The younger Swiss are becoming more European. And I think there will be a deterioration in their competitive position relative to the rest of Europe. In in terms of the Swiss franc being an international uh, currency, uh, the domestic 
Swiss franc securities market isn't small. It's infinitesimal. It's tiny. Uh, and the free float and the trading volume in the Swiss franc makes it completely unsuited to being a trade currency. As a store of wealth relative to other European currencies, yes, perhaps. Rick, with the realignment of nations and trade and commodity wars that's occurring right now, how has this affected how you approach resource investing? Well, it's certainly made investing in Russia more tricky, uh, <laughs> something I've enjoyed doing for 30 years. Uh, the, uh, you, you know, following on that theme, leaving the morality of investing in Russia, or for that matter, the morality of investing in the U.S. aside, uh, looking at the cheapest resource market in the world, uh, which Russia was by a very mar- wide margin, and seeing those stocks fall by 80%, uh, really awakens the value-oriented contrarian tendencies, which sort of rule my psyche. Uh, on the other side, uh, it's pretty clear that the Russians won't be able to get dollars to pay me dividends. And the idea that I get paid a dividend in a non-spendable, non-convertible currency, which is to say a ruble, is somewhat less than attractive. Uh, then the idea that my government may ultimately make me sell it uh, is probably not attractive too. And the third alternative is that Mr. Putin might steal it uh, and award it to some of his cronies. Makes life difficult. Uh, being an investor, either inside or outside one's domicile, uh, is always tricky. Uh, and as globalization fades, uh, as people become more nationalistic, uh, more guarded, more fascist, uh, the freedom to invest across borders, the freedom to diversify away from the gang of thieves that is the politicians that rule you, uh, becomes less easy, uh, even at the same time that the overregulated sclerotic tendencies that have dominated other nations come home to roost in the United States. If you looked at the actions of our own government, in the context of the actions that we deplore in other governments, uh, what you find is that that great comic strip philosopher Pogo was correct when he said, "When he said, I have met the enemy, and he is us." And so, your thoughts on our own government revoking resolution coppers permit or trilogy metals road permit—it's kind of like self-sabotaging behavior and some of the risks that we, as U.S. investors, maybe don't recognize until it happens. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, the most dangerous government, the greatest degree of political risk that you face is always your own. Uh, People don't want to admit that, but that's true. Certainly, the schizophrenic behavior of this administration towards the oil and gas industry is hilarious, Uh, begging the Saudis to permit more while freezing federal land from oil and gas drilling, Uh, telling the U.S. industry that they have to produce more uh, or or whatever, while at the same time denying permits for pipelines. And calling them greedy at the same time, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the schizophrenic, not, not the schizophrenic nature, schizophrenic gives them too much credit. The blatantly dishonest nature uh, of politics uh, in the United States, but in other countries, is something that investors have to take into account. Uh, extractive industries are capital intensive and they're cyclical. Uh, and unfortunately, they're fixed. 
And so you're always more subjected to political risk in natural resource businesses than you are in intellectual capital businesses. <clears throat> if you and I owned an algorithm or some form of technology and the U.S. government continued in this rapacious nature, we could move to Liechtenstein and we could take that technology with us in our brains. Uh, if we have the resolution copper deposit uh, in Arizona, which, by the way, would have been in production seven years ago, we're in Sonora, Mexico, <laughs> across the border. Uh, a few things can happen. Uh, politics can get in the way, or they could let us spend seven or eight billion dollars putting the thing in production, uh, and then presto changeo, uh, change the tax regs, uh, and, and confiscate the economic benefit of the deposit uh, on a stealth basis, uh, which I suspect that they will do. Rick, in terms of governments allowing these deposits to come into production, when we look at the gold miners, don't you think Africa presents some of the best opportunities for faster growth relative to some of the North American counterparts? I do. Uh, I think West Africa is still underexplored. It has a massive, massive uh, inventory of Archean and Proterozoic greenstone belts, uh, which uh, can host spectacular gold deposits. Those societies, too, are advancing fairly rapidly, albeit in chaotic fashion. But increasingly, there's a domestic capability in countries like Mali uh, and Ghana to uh, regulate uh, the mining industry in a knowledgeable fashion. There is certainly much better human resources uh, to run and manage those mines that ex then existed in the 1980s <laughs> when I first went to West Africa uh, as an investor. Uh, that isn't to say that there aren't sociological challenges. There's extraordinarily poor people. Uh, there are uh, politicians who are <laughs> admirably honest uh, in, in the fact that admitting that they're completely corrupt. <laughs> in other words, they want a bribe, not a campaign contribution. <laughs> Qualitatively no different than ours, but at least their politicians are honest about the fact that they're rapacious thieves, um, which can be efficient. Um, there is certainly in the Sahel, in the northern part of West Africa, a very active uh, Islamist nationalist, some would say Islamist terrorist threat. Uh, we've seen that in Burkina Faso. We've seen it in Mali. We've seen it in Chad. <clears throat> and that's something that you have to consider. Uh, no place is without risk. Brian? Um, is being contrarian, contrarian solely a quantitative matter, or is there a qualitative part to consider too? Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, because I have a more quantitative mind, it's easier for me to sort by numbers. Uh, but I, I think there's a truism. It's a really good question, and I hope your viewers focus their minds on it. Uh, I think... A question. Let me think about that. I, I think I've never seen Rick Rule stumped. Here we go, Brian. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out how to say this. You know, normally somebody's saying, "Do you think gold is going to go up or down?" And I say, "Yes." You know, yes, it's going to go up or down. Uh, in this circumstance, uh, I, I think a society or a country that can't get any worse over time gets better, and I think a society or a country that can't get any better over time gets worse. I remember investing, if that's the right phrase, in the Congo in 1995 and 1996. And it was a mess. Um, areas were depopulating. 
what once had been road had been reclaimed as jungle. And by the way, not by the environmentalists, but rather by the environment. Uh, the government were total thugs. Uh, there was AIDS, Ebola, malaria, warlords. Two million people died in the Civil War. The place was truly broke. Uh, the consequence of that is that what was at the time the best undeveloped copper deposit in the world, Tankefun Garumi, controlled by the first family in mine finance, the Lundines, was selling for 19 cents a share when it had 30 cents a share cash in it. In other words, you got the deposit, the copper deposit, and 11 cents free cash. Um, was the contrarian in me quantitative or qualitative? And I would have to say both. <clears throat> it was very clear to me that the copper had been emplaced 45 or 50 million years ago. And the copper was completely unimpressed by the stupidity of all the people killing each other on top of it. I don't want to sound heartless, but the copper would be there after enough people had died that they were tired of spasmodic killing and wanted to get back to life. Uh, is that a qualitative realization or a quantitative realization? I don't know, but it's a good question and I'll ponder it. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you're on a roll. So what's your next question? Yeah. <laughs> um, I was suggested to read, and uh, I, I don't, hope I don't botch his name, Bernard Baruch autobiography. Yes. And he states that there are three things necessary to be a successful speculator. He says, first, one must get all the facts of a situation or a problem. Second, one must form a judgment as to what those facts portend. Third, one must act in time before it's too late. So two questions for you. First, in regards to resource sector, uh, resource sector speculator, is there anything he's missing? And yes. second, if, yes. okay, go ahead. Go ahead. If if you were to get one of them wrong, which would it be? Um, what he's missing? Uh, what I guess he didn't say. Well, I, I think he's missing several things. The first thing he's missing is there's no mention of Pareto's law. Uh, and as a speculator, you have to align yourself with serially successful people. Uh, and that's a very big flaw. Uh, the third point that he makes that you have to act uh, is wrong, too. Uh, when you have a preponderance of evidence on your side, particularly where you're lonely, like I was in the Congo, you don't just need to bet. You need to bet big. What Buffett says is the secret to getting rich is mostly doing nothing. Nothing. Uh, don't try to be busy. But when the stars line up on your side, bet and bet very big. But people who take Baruch too literally uh, screw up the first thing too. They believe that they can get all the facts. You can't get all the facts. Uh, the idea that you could study and study and study and study and study uh, until you knew uh, certainly what was going to happen, when and why, is an excuse for procrastination. Uh, getting all the facts assumes that there's some certainty in life, and there isn't. There's merely a range of probabilities. And you have to be tolerant of the fact that you have to act uh, when the probabilities and the risk to reward ratios are attractive to you, not when you have satisfied all of your curiosity around a question, because you never will. Hmm. Okay. Have a follow up, Brian, on that one? I know that's that's a great answer. I, I actually I actually have a follow up. Bernard, <laughs> Bernard Baruch has a great quote. Uh, 
uh, he said that the only person who ever bought at the bottom and sold at the top was a liar, that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and given that I have probably never, ever once bought at the bottom and sold at the top, I'm really relieved to hear a great speculator like him uh, acknowledge that truth. <laughs> and Rick, do you think one of your greatest weaknesses as a resource speculator has been being too early too often? Would that be accurate? I don't. I think it's one of my greatest strengths. Uh, being early beats being late and it beats missing things. And then how do you value the opportunity cost in there then? If you're four years too early before the expect the stock takes off that you're expecting at, to. At, at today's interest rates, which is to say nil, I'm just about right because my opportunity cost doesn't exist. Uh, and if I, we've had this discussion before, Bill, and I thought a lot about it. It's a great discussion. The uh, opportunity cost in speculative resources is often negative because if you're early in a good deal, you've saved money from being late in a bad deal. If you look at exploration as an example, where your expectation is failure and your winners amortize your losers, being early on a good deal saves you being on time for losing money. Uh, I've done both. (laughs) And I've thought about that a lot. Uh, I used to believe, particularly in in the 80s in very high interest rates environments, you know, where my uh, avoided return uh, in a 10-year treasury might have been 12%. Uh, if you're uh, discounting an outcome at 12% compounded and you're four years early, you're probably not early. You're probably wrong. And since you're one of the fathers of the full five-year warrant, I guess you've covered yourself there in being early too, right? <laughs> well, that's been fairly frustrating for me in the sense that we are in an environment today where there's so much liquidity, some of it artificial, uh, and where you've had fairly benign investing climate in place for 40 years, even in our sector, uh, that marginal issues, issuers' cost of capital is so low, so artificially low, that the five-year warrant inducement that I was uh, able to extract, uh, which I regard as fair compensation, particularly for being early, is seldom available. Um, there are points in time where wishing to be treated invest- fairly as an investor is the equivalent of wishing that the tooth fairy existed. Uh, you know, it, it, it isn't going to happen. In times like that, by the way, often the best answer is to go on strike, uh, not participate in private placements, but rather uh, buy issues that you think are going to buy a private placement where you think, as an example, the management teams are going to try and take the price higher of the stock. <laughs> if they're not going to give me a warrant anyway, why would I accept a four-month hold? That's just truly insane. Uh, so what's happened to me is that with the exception of uh, hybrid debt equity or preferred private placements, which I negotiate perfect personally, uh, I'm almost out of the private placement market today. Interesting. When you have warrants that are in the money, let's say 60% or 150% um, above the exercise price, and you still have 12 months to 18 months left in time premium, like what is your approach or how do you, I know there's so many factors and variables, especially with all your clients, but maybe share some thoughts about when to exercise warrants that you do have that are in the money. I try to be a good shareholder. Uh, And I visit with the management team in terms of their needs for cash and liquidity. And to the extent that I have a big warrant position, and usually when I participate in a private placement, I participate in some size, 
uh, I, I know that the time to take liquidity is when they're handing it out. Uh, and so I'm competing with a bunch of people who actually believe that they have some clairvoyant ability to predict when their maximum profit might occur. And those people also might have 25,000 warrants. Uh, I've been speculating now for 45 years, and I know for certain that I don't have any clairvoyant uh, ability to predict markets 12 months out. So to the extent that I can scale into a market where people don't see the selling that I might do to exercise the warrant, where I can assist the issuer in maintaining his or her market, while at the same time extracting fair rent for myself and putting cash in the treasury, uh, that's what I try to do. That's one of the reasons why, despite the fact that I negotiate very, very, very hard in terms of entry terms, some very high quality issuers, you know, the Bob Quartermains, the Ross Beatties, the Lundin families, the Robert Friedlands, bring me back time and time and time again, because one of my considerations is always to <clears throat> maximize the collective benefit uh, around my own investing strategies. Rick, we've talked about gold producers in the past on this show, you, you and me, where I asked you about dividends and gold producers versus investing back in the company. And I remember you saying, it's up, Bill, it's always good when they give money back to me, the shareholder. Now, when it comes to junior producers, and I'm talking small one asset producers that might have a pipeline of projects they're going to want to develop, but yet they're giving an impressive uh, dividend because they're wanting to attract the yield investors as well as the crazy gold stock investors. What are your thoughts on this strategy? Uh, if I know the management team for long enough, that I trust what they're going to do with their money. In other words, if I would put money back in by way of a private placement, I'm fine if they keep it. I don't know many of those guys. <laughs> I know that I do better with companies that have owners, not managers. So uh, somebody who owns 15% of his company, like Ross Beattie with Pan American, I guess he's down to 13% now. Uh, I trust Ross to make the right decision. Uh, because he's making a decision with his money, not just with my money. Uh, what you find is that very large shareholders uh, tend to make shareholder-friendly decisions. Clive Johnson right now, very, very, very large shareholder of B2. B2 is absolutely gushing cash. It's generating an insane amount of cash. At some point in time, uh, the sh some shareholders... I think are going to want Clive to buy something or deploy cash in a way that provides for cash flow certainty as Focola begins to wind down. But, you know, Clive has said that he won't do a stupid acquisition. Uh, he won't do a stupid mind build. And so right now, uh, among other reasons, because Clive owns in excess of 100 million shares of B2, <laughs> he's paying a nice dividend. Um, and I, I, I think that's the right way to go. Uh, the guys at West African, uh, I think, could be paying a more generous dividend, but they have the ability to consolidate a whole district uh, in southern Burkina Faso. Uh, they did such a spectacular job on their mind build there that I'm inclined to encourage them rather than giving the money to me uh, with the prop with the possibility that I make a mistake reinvesting it uh, to continue to consolidate that district on a hub and spoke basis. I can see them getting from, you know, four plus million ounces 
uh, in reserve and resources to 10 or 12 uh, by additional exploration and development. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that. With most management teams, uh, you know, comprised of the lame, the halt, and the blind, uh, controlling a Class B or a Class C deposit, I say, give me my money back. <laughs> you know, let me make my own mistakes. Uh, but with the superstars, uh, you know, uh, with Robert Friedland as an example, the ability that he has to reinvest the money from Kamoa Kakula uh, into the Platt Reef, uh, just at the time that platinum group metals are roiled by geopolitical turmoil in Russia, or uh, to bring the Kapushi mine, the highest quality zinc mine in the world into production after zinc prices have doubled. Uh, I'm inclined to say, Robert, I don't need the money back too quickly. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Rick, you said um, you invest with Robert Friedland, Bob Quartermain, Ross Beatty, and these people, you said my one thing I would have done differently. You've told me in the past is invest with them more often and not take a risk on more unknown entities to me. Now, oh, how true. When you invest with these superstars, these these now billionaires that have made you a lot of money, how long do you give them with a certain issuer they're in charge of and it's not working out or they're not making you money? Do you call them up and say, hey, remember, I'm a shareholder? Or do you view their current efforts through all the money they made you in the past? When does the darling status wear off? I call them all the time. Uh, not because I'm second guessing them, but rather uh, because a, a press release, even a quarterly filing statement, is uh, insufficient knowledge for me. Uh, I want the nuance. In terms of how much time I give them, uh, I give them enough time until they have, uh, uh, until the probabilities are such that I need to sell. Uh, Ross Beatty did a deal. It actually ended up working, uh, but not particularly well, uh, DeCapo years ago. Uh, and uh, over time, it became clear to me that what he was attempting to do, he couldn't do. And he was going to embark on a salvage operation. Now, that's very admirable. Uh, and I've admired him for it ever since. But I wasn't going to victimize myself uh, with his three-year-long effort to salvage something uh, that was going to have a, a subpar outcome. Uh, no knock on Ross. Uh, you know, he didn't let it go to zero. He worked it out. He got it sold. Uh, he got it sold on reasonable terms. But that would have been dead money for three years and dead money that was certainly dead money. In other words, the probabilities went from he's probably going to succeed to he's probably not going to succeed. So from my viewpoint, uh, that's the circumstance. The fact that... Uh, the fact that, as an example, I started buying Ivanhoe Mines uh, at the $2 level, and it fell to $0.60 cents, was a blessing to me. Uh, I'd already done all the work. Uh, I had a great relationship with Robert. I, I knew who he was and what he was. I was calling him monthly, and not just calling him monthly, calling a bunch of his people monthly. So I had a very good sense of what was going on. And I was able to employ more physical capital around intellectual capital that I already expended. And so while I had a decent position at $2, I ended up with an enormous position at $0.63 cents, uh, in time to see the stock go to $11. Uh, 
Same thing with uh, Paladin, have, similar story, right? Yeah, Where you take I a mean, position, I, it falls, you you double down. You're either right or wrong. Uh, if something falls precipitously, there's no hold. Uh, it's either a buy or a sell. Either you're wrong or the market's wrong. Uh, and more times than it would be otherwise reasonable to believe, the market's been wrong. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing I've had three dozen or four dozen, 10 baggers or 10 baggers plus in my life. <clears throat> Sadly, early on, I didn't have enough money for the 10 bagger. <laughs> You know, you know. Let's just say that the early ones weren't responsible for a world-class fortune because the starting number was so low. Uh, but uh, my expectation is that to achieve a ten bagger or a twenty bagger or a thirty bagger is going to take me at least five years, because I don't just need good news. I need compound good news. And as the money that I invest gets larger and larger, you know, I sort of have a million dollar minimum ticket now and, a, you know, more like a three to five million dollar preferred ticket. <clears throat> uh, something that uh, flirts with a win, but isn't a real win. In other words, a market that's working with a deposit that's not working where you require liquidity. I can't take advantage of that. And I'm not temperamentally suited to that anyway. So I assume it's going to take me five years to get a 10 bagger. And I assume because of experience that at least once, but probably twice in that five-year period, the stock's going to fall by 50%. Uh, if that's what the market's going to do, it's up to me whether or not uh, I get shaken out by that uh, or whether I use that opportunity when a deposit that I understand very well is cheap to buy more. Brian, uh, final question. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think you've sort of answered this <laughs> in parts already, but I'll ask the question anyways, um, because I'm getting, I get a lot of uh, feedback or emails on this kind of subject. So basically looking back on my investing career, I, I think much of it has been spent more in bear markets than bulls. Like there's, um, I guess, a bunch of what you would call like sideways or bad years and sprinkled in with a couple of really good years and where I've actually made some really good money. With this in mind, you know, I've had to deal with the adversity of falling markets and the volition of my investment thesis. And I'm bullish on metals in the future. But I know that markets don't go straight up, and this is what my experience has taught me. Um, so in dealing with turmoil or adversity, uh, is it just a matter of realizing that markets don't go straight up? How can investors prepare themselves for the ups and downs of metals markets in the future? Well, down markets are sales. And so investors need to ask themselves whether sales are good. If you go out to buy yourself a coat, are you praying that you pay full retail? Are you determined to pay four or five hundred dollars for that coat? Or if it was on overstock.com for 195 bucks, would you prefer to buy it then? Bear markets are overstock.com. You realize the money in good markets, you make the money in bad markets. Uh, Bernard Baruch would acknowledge that ultimately you make money by buying low and selling high. Uh, everybody wants to buy low in a bull market. Uh, the problem with that is that what you want is irrelevant. It's what you can have. You buy low in bad markets and you sell high in good markets. And anybody who has any idea that they're going to get bargains when they're feeling psychologically attuned to the market is a moron. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't happen. <clears throat> Listen, everybody wants, uh, you know, you two guys, what you want 
is a nasty weekend with three models from Victoria's Secret. Is it going to happen? For the record, I'm happily married, Rick. I'm yeah. really not interested in that. I got to say I, I, it. My wife yeah, listens I, I, to my show, okay? Yeah, I, I, I'm talking about the fantasy world, right? Uh, <laughs> listen, I, I'm uh, I'm almost 70 years of age, so we'll, we'll leave that problem aside. Um, all I'm trying to say is that everybody wants uh, a bull market where they're feeling strong, where even their money, even their mistakes are making them money with a superb management team and, and a wonderful property. That's cheap. <laughs> so what if you want that? Oh, oh, oh. And by the way, uh, you want it in a tier one jurisdiction uh, with uh, all of the politicians uh, clapping and cheering you on. You can want all that stuff all day long, uh, but wanting something that you can't have is mere fantasy. You have to think through the opportunities on offer uh, and take advantage of good opportunities, which usually occur uh, when you're feeling psychologically challenged by some aspect uh, of the investment. Rick, Place, you, commodity, you know, markets. Brian, did you have a follow-up on that one? or No, no, that's great. Thank you. So Rules Symposium is not going to be in Canada. It is going to be in person. We're going to Boca Raton Resort in Boca Raton, Florida, July 26th through 29. I'm trying to make arrangements to be there. Tell us more about this, Rick. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, many of your listeners know that for 20-something years, I put on a conference in Vancouver, uh, the Vancouver Natural Resources Investment Symposium. Uh, and I think it was a great conference. Uh, I think it is a great conference. Obviously, COVID got in the way of that. Uh, and we've, done, we've since done some highly successful video conferences, but our customers told us they wanted a live conference again with uh, a border in the way. Uh, and the continuing nervousness that public health officials have about COVID. It was impossible for me to work up the courage to have the conference in Vancouver this year. Uh, the Boca Raton Resort approached us. Uh, this is a timeless, classic uh, resort in Boca Raton with beachfront and bayfront, just a truly spectacular place, a playground of the rich and famous for many years that was taken over by private equity and completely refurbished. Uh, during uh, the COVID crisis. But rooms that will, when the situation returned to normal, uh, sell for $1,000 a night are being sold to our attendees for $295 a night. I am a value investor at my <laughs> core. Uh, and so I'm really, really looking forward to uh, being down there. We will have wonderful big, thing, big picture uh, speakers, two of whom I can't name, uh, until I absolutely have them nailed down, but I'm pretty close to nailing them down. And then the usual suspects, the Jim Rickarts, the Doug Casey's, the Daniela DiMartino Booth, uh, the Grant Williamses, who are always, uh, I hate Grant. He always outpulls me at my own conference for best speakers. Uh, the part of the conference that I always like the most is the living legends, uh, where we have a collection of people who are self-made billionaires. Uh, in the mining or oil and gas sectors, where they talk to you about how they invest their own money. I remember four years ago following at a discreet distance, Robert Friedland uh, around the exhibit floor at my conference, paying attention to what companies Robert was interviewing and whether he was smiling or scowling when he was listening to the answers. And I was thinking, this by itself is worth the price of admission. Uh, importantly, too, at our conference, every exhibitor there is owned in my account or in accounts managed by me. That doesn't 
bill sadly mean that all the stocks will go up. I'm not clairvoyant. What it does mean is that I have personally vetted every exhibitor there, vetted them well enough that I own them uh, on my own behalf. Uh, at most conferences uh, for exhibitors, uh, admission is limited to those with a pulse and a check that cashes in reverse order of importance. And I think one of the things that's really different about our conference is that where the rubber meets the road, where you make the money, which is to say with the exhibitors, that they've all been vetted. Um, every educational product that I've offered up, Bill, in the last 27 years of my career has come with a full money-back guarantee. If you come to my conference in person and you think it isn't worth the money that you spent, send me an email, I'll give you the money back. If you can't come in person, if you're outside the United States, uh, we will have this conference online. It will be available online. If you don't like the video version of the conference, Full money back guarantee. How many people actually take you up on that, if you don't mind, Rick, since you're transparent? Like 3% or? Nowhere near 3%. Uh, nowhere near 3 I, We just did a uranium boot camp, highly successful uranium boot camp uh, video product. 3,305 people attended. And I think if my memory serves me well, 29 people wanted their money back. And some who wanted their money back were uh, very congratulatory about the conference. They just said it was too technical uh, or that the information presented gave them the understanding that they didn't belong in the uranium market. Uh, because they asked for their money back, because there's a money back guarantee, I didn't hold the fact that they liked the conference against them. I just gave them their money back. But I, you know, if 29 people out of 3,305 people want their money back, frankly, I'd rather have them have their money back. Uh, I'd like my... Uh, Reputation unblemished by taint. But if they decide they want to get into something as technical as uranium investing, then they'll go back to you because they'll know sure. where to find it. Or they won't. Uh, th that's okay. It, throughout my life, uh, I've learned that there are a few people who will abuse you. And when people abuse you, you tend to build barriers because that abuse is psychologically unpleasant. And those barriers uh, operate to the detriment of the 99% of humankind that are good people. Why would I build a bunch of barriers to 3,300 people because of my fear that three or four out of the 29 people who asked for a refund weren't good people? Stupid. Well, Rick, uh, Brian and I both, I can speak for Brian. I think I can, Brian, that uh, we really appreciated another hour of mentorship. Thank you. And I will link to your show, uh, your uh, upcoming symposium in the show notes. And Rick's website is, if you want to follow him, ruleinvestmentmedia.com and LinkedIn. Are those the two best place to find you on the web? Best place to find me is ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Uh, if you come to that site and list your natural resource stocks, I personally will rank them one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. I'll comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. Uh, two other things I'll do uh, if your listeners care. Uh, the first is that because I'm no longer a broker, uh, I can disclose the private placements that I'm able to invest in. It's no longer soliciting because I don't get paid. I'm not soliciting. So anybody who's accredited who wants to be informed of the private placements that I participate in and why, uh, in the question and comment section uh, at Rural Investment Media, write placements. Many people also know that uh, in retirement, uh, I'm starting another bank, <laughs> backing my, own my old friend, Frank Trotter, who built EverBank from zero to $28 billion dollars. 
uh, old-fashioned bank where we lend against good security, we pay decent depositors, and a bank that has money in it. Uh, if you want to do business- A real re- rate of return though, Rick? Real? Yeah. Well, re- real rate of return. In, in today's era of negative interest rates, the answer to that will be no. <laughs> uh, we will be in the top decile uh, in- uh, of negative real rates, <laughs> in 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 deposit rates okay. uh, of any institution uh, in the United States, simply because we won't have any brick and mortar location. The bank will be all online, uh, and so our cost of capital will allow us to be in the highest ten percent of deposit interest rates uh, in the country. Largely because we don't have uh, other costs of capital, which is to say uh, bricks and mortar offices. And also because as lenders, we don't intend to be all things to all people. There are certain aspects of lending, as an example, lending against people's own personal holdings of physical gold and silver that are businesses that we understand very well. And I expect our loan losses in that business will be none. <laughs> now, now you retired to get away from the regulators. If you're getting into the banking business, there's a ton of regulators in the banking business, isn't there? Yeah, Bill, I never claimed to be really smart. Um, <laughs> and in, in this particular bank, I'm not going to be an officer or an employee. Okay. Uh, until the bank gets to a certain size, I'm forced to be a director. And I must say the OCC, uh, uh, the regulatory body that we've dealt with so far, uh, let's describe them as thorough. Uh, I wouldn't describe them so far as punitive. Uh, I was impressed in our interview uh, that they told us informally, it's nice to interview people that are starting a bank that know about starting banks. Uh, it's nice to have a business plan where the people involved in the business plan have executed it successfully before. Uh, it was, as regulators go, well, actually, not just as regulators go, the initial encounters that we've had with the OCC have been very impressive. Uh, I'm sure I'll go to like them less as time goes on. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not a fan of government in general, if I recall. I'm not. I'm not. I'm <laughs> yeah. not. Well, Rick, really appreciate your insights today. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.